Greetings, and welcome to Montessori in Action, a podcast for Montessori educators to remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host, Elizabeth Slade, and let's spend some time listening to what is in the hearts and on the minds of other Montessorians. Our next episode is a conversation about key children. This is a term that puts wide arms around the most complex children in our Montessori classrooms. These are children who may have big personalities, they may have experienced trauma, have individualized education plans, or have a vision and passion beyond their years. They are the children who hold the key to our own personal transformation as they help us to grow and change in our practice, becoming ever more flexible and widening our view of what is possible. This episode is a conversation with two practitioners whose jobs are to work directly with key children, Ashley Anderson and Bobby Johnson. Our first guest is Ashley Anderson. Ashley earned her bachelor's degree at Copen State University and then received her master's in clinical psychology with a concentration in applied behavior analysis at Capella University. She has worked for nearly 10 years in special education and is currently the director of special education at Breakthrough Montessori in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Ashley Anderson. Thank you so much for being on Montessori in Action podcast. Hey, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here with you today. Wonderful. So our topic today is key children, something you know a lot about. And I was wondering if you'd share what draws you to working with key children. Absolutely. Um, I don't know where the drive came from, honestly. Uh, I started um, studying psychology in undergrad. Um, and in my mind, I thought I was going to be... Um, either working in clinical psychology for a really long time. I wanted to work with abnormal psych, especially. Um, and then as I went through my career, I thought maybe I'd be like a behavior analyst for the FBI. And oh. so I thought like I had really like, you know, the mystery and the law and order shows really had wrapped me up as a, <laughs> as a kid. Um, and then I got into undergrad and um, started working and studying all the different, you know, um, fields of psychology and theories of psychology and really just fell in love with human development. I had a professor who really pushed me towards that, um, mm. that, that study. And I just fell in love with it and child psychology and just how the brain develops in, in general and how sometimes it hits these little hiccups and we call them learning disabilities. And so I was really intrigued by that and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, just fell in love with it. Mm. And, I love that you're calling it a little hiccup in the brain, yeah. <laughs> but you work with all kinds of children in the Montessori environment, and you want to share what you found is maybe a key to working with key children when you have such a wide range of learners there? Um, I really think this is a place where Montessori and behavior really aligns in that I, the most useful tool that I've found has just really been observation, just taking the time mm -hmm. to sit back and mm -hmm. observe the child in the environment and figure out again, like where they hit that little hiccup that just trips them up and kind of makes it, makes the environment unaccessible for them. And so I think really taking time to observe and then working to help the child master that obstacle is how they navigate the environment and push forward, I think. 
Mm-hmm. Montessori writes so much about obstacles. That's so interesting mm-hmm. um, to think of it that way. Yeah. Um, you mentioned sort of the alignment with behaviorists, and I know that um, there can be some healthy friction between behaviorist and constructivist thinking. Have you run into that coming from your background into a Montessori setting? Yeah, all the time. Uh, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where um, if you come in too rigid, you'll never learn anything. Um, and mm. then, so I think being flexible when you think about the constructivist view and the behaviors view, and also just being really optimistic. Like I've I've just been really optimistic, and I I really feel deeply that they can be merged. I'm not really um, so when I look at you know, the Montessori world, I don't try to separate the two. I've never right. tried to separate the two. I just look for the ways that they align mm-hmm. and kind of move forward with that practice. Um, and yeah, there's there's things all the time that I think conflict and bounce off of one another. And um, we just, we I, I think I take it by case by case um, of which, which theory is going to win this time, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So like, for, for example, there's lots of... Um, in the, in the constructivist view, there's lots of space to allow children to make errors. And we we believe on the constructivist side that that's part of the process, right? Like they have to yeah. make the errors. They have to, you know, learn from that trial and error perspective. And then in the behavioral world, a lot of times it's the complete opposite where we believe that by allowing the child to consistently make errors, they kind of learn to practice things erroneously where... Mm-hmm. You know, so those things bump all the time mm-hmm. in the Montessori world. And so it's always a, a interesting, um, like, internal battle of figuring out, like, do we let this child, this particular child, continue to make the error and try to figure it out on their own? Or is this particular material an obstacle and the child needs, you know, explicit instruction to overcome that? Um, so I think for key children, sometimes you have to balance between mm-hmm. whether or not we can fully re- rely on the material to provide that feedback mm-hmm. or if we have to tweak the environment more so that they understand what the material is trying to teach. Mm-hmm. And what do you use to measure or um, decide what data points do you look for in determining? Um, I really rely on... Um, I, I rely a lot on quantitative data, right? So I'm, I'm constantly tracking like trials and how many, how many successes the child is having throughout the trial, which is again, like a contrast to the Montessori world because in my experience, Montessorians re- rely a lot on observation and narrative data, which is not always, it doesn't always line up mm-hmm. that the same way, um, in the sped world. But for me, I use numbers because they give me a more, I guess a clearer picture of where the child is with a specific set of material. Um, mm-hmm. So that allows me to d- determine whether or not we're making progress or mm-hmm. whether or not we're getting stagnant and we're and we're stuck. So, mm-hmm. um, and for me, I've learned to be very flexible with what I consider to be progress now. Right. Yeah. So, like in the behavior world, like we're we're looking at on average if a child is let's say doing 10 trials, we don't count it as success until they're at about 80% accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be 80 or above, right? So mm-hmm. in the behavior world, for us to count that as success, in some behavior worlds, it's even smaller of a margin. Mm-hmm. Some people really go for like 90% success or higher. Um, but in the Montessori world, I've learned that I have to count all of the successes, right? Mm-hmm. So even if we, even mm-hmm. if I have a kid and when I assess the child the first time, they come in, 
at 10% accuracy. If I go back in and check on that child again in a couple of days and they're at 20%, well, that's growth for me. Double. You know, like now it's like, <laughs> yeah, you've doubled your, <laughs> you've absolutely, you've doubled it. Like it's amazing. So I've learned to kind of really scale back and, and accept that progress comes in many shapes and forms. Some kids mm. are going to make huge leaps and bounds and other kids are going to inch along like little caterpillars, but you know, they're still mm-hmm. growing and they're still moving and that's all mm-hmm. still progress. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. That's likely really helpful in the wide spectrum of key children starting back with child study, where we are beginning to collect some of that quantitative data that we need to have a, a resource that tells us if we're moving towards the set goal, right? Absolutely. And so um, to, you know, maybe even prevent identification for special education by having that strong data collection. Sure, yeah. I think this is um, something that we've worked really hard at trying to, you know, infuse into the child study process is like how we collect data. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, since I've been working at Breakthrough and since I've been, you know, seeing the child study practice in practice, I think we've really been trying to push and shift to kind of give Montessorians more access to data collection and like different forms of data collection, what that looks like. It doesn't, you know, showing them that it doesn't have to always be observation, that it's okay to use that quantitative data Mm -hmm. so that you can measure progress. And, you know, we're not looking for huge leaps and bounds always, but it's, it's nice to have a very clear start point so that you can measure, you know, where the growth is going. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been an interesting part of shaping and understanding and working through child study. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you said, there's that optimism, but there's a way in which the optimism can um, cloud the data if we're relying just on narrative because we are so hopeful that the children will succeed. Yeah. Mm, wonderful to see that connection between the the healthy tension and how the behaviorist data collection strength is supporting the constructivist elements. Absolutely. What, what were you going to say? I was I was going to say I love how um I think every monastery I've ever spoke with I love how when they speak about like children and skill acquisition and progress they always use the term like not yet mm-hmm. and I think that's just like the coolest thing like in in the behavioral world like or at least in my experience in the behavior world, it's always very clean cut and dry. It's like either the child has the skill or they don't. Like there is no not yet. Like there's <laughs> there's like what? It's either present or it's not present. And so just having that middle ground in Montessori has been so like relieving as a behaviorist, you know, to come in and be like, yeah, we can say not yet. And that's still accurate. And it's still, you know, you know, it still shows us where the child currently is, but it also leaves room for that hope and that optimism that, the child is growing and the child is moving themselves toward this thing that we've, you know, in the behavior world would have said, like, they, they can't do. They're not there yet. You know, they're not there. And so mm-hmm. it's nice in the Montessori world to be able to have the not yet. Like, I really cling on to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about key children during this pandemic time of virtual learning. Um, mm. I know you're in D.C. where it, Breakthrough and Lee are both D.C. schools starting out yeah. virtually and having just finished school virtually. How has it been with the key children during this time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been such a challenging time for, for children in general trying to learn virtually. Um, but I think for key children especially, just because of all the challenges that they, they're facing, they it can be really difficult to keep them 
looped in and at the forefront of our thoughts. Um, when we think about, when I think about the key children at our school, I think like these are the children who need us the most at this time, who need the most support, the most structure, the most anchoring, you know. And so when I think about them through the virtual learning, you know, platforms, I, I worry a lot about whether or not um, we're, we're, you know, really digging in and giving them all the things that they need to to be able to access virtually. I think there's so many other factors that we have to consider when we're working with key children. I think, I mean, we're, we're globally, I think we're worried about the amount of screen time that children are getting from this yeah. virtual learning platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, especially for key children, I mean, who are dealing with some of our key children who deal with like sensory processing disorders and things like that, like, or ADHD or any of these other, you know, disorders or learning disabilities that have, um, components of like impulsivity or um, focus and attention, these, uh, these, these um, needs are really complicated by the need to stay still, the need to stay focused and locked into a laptop in order to get instruction. I think mm-hmm. those things make it very challenging for our key students. Um, and so it's not only just like the, the change of platform, right? It's not only going from having this very hands-on learning experience to just sitting behind a screen, but it's also these other surrounding, you know, complications that make, make learning for them even more challenging. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. So I think at Breakthrough, we're doing everything we can to support them as much as possible. I'm giving them very engaging material to try and, um, keep them locked in and focused, but, also, I think we've just been very flexible. Like um, the the relationships that we have with our parents allow us to be a lot more flexible than I think um, some other school districts may be able to pull off. <laughs> right, um, but right. our, our our parents are very communicative. They mm-hmm. will tell us really quickly, like this is an overloaded day. This child can't handle this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to make sessions shorter today or this is a really great day. Let's maximize this. Let's use mm-hmm. as much time as you have available and as much time as this child will sit, you know, like, so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think our parent community has been just super flexible. They're very aware of their children's needs. Mm -hmm. And um, as staff, we're really receptive to what parents have to say in regards to their children's needs. Mm -hmm. And we just try to compliment each other as much as possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. So last question, Ashley, I'm just wondering what, what you have learned about yourself from working with key children. Sure. Um, I think this is something I was talking um, to coworkers about the other day. Um, and someone asked me like why I, I do this work with special needs children or children with special needs. And I told them that I think working with uh, key children really is just something that grounds me in a way that I can't thoroughly explain. <laughs> like it, it just <laughs> This work forces me to be present, which is not a place that I'm always at, <laughs> I think, <laughs> you know, um, it just forces me to be in the moment. And I think if I if I come into, like if we were in an in-person program, if I came into that building with any other baggage that I may have you know, been able to bring in, if I bring that into a space with these children, they pick up on it instantly. They know that I'm not there with them there. Mm-hmm. And they reflect that in their behavior and the way that they work, what they're willing to produce that day. So I really have to come in um, into each session with them with a blank slate just open and ready to do whatever it is the day holds for them. And so um, 
I think that's part of the drive of why I stay working with key children and why mm-hmm. I enjoy this work, why I'm so fulfilled by this work, mm-hmm. because it's genuinely the one time in my day or in my my life, really, where I am focused and I'm present for that moment. Mm. It sounds almost transcendent that you just sort of yeah. <laughs> let go of all other things and you're just fully there. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, we talk about self-care all the time and I'm like, this kind of is self-care. Like if I could just, <laughs> you know, cut out all the paperwork, cut out all the data, cut out everything. If I could just be with, you know, these kids and mm-hmm. just really get caught up in the moment of being with these children, that in itself is self-care, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. There's <laughs> no problem. Thank you for the invite. Our next guest is Bobby Johnson. Bobby studied psychology at Long Beach Community College and then went on to El Camino Community College where he studied American Sign Language. He ultimately earned his degree from Howard University, majoring in communication sciences and disorders with a concentration in early childhood education. Bobby gained experiences through work as a speech and language pathology assistant and through the practice of applied behavioral analysis, primarily with children on the autism spectrum. Currently, Bobby works as the Dean of Students and Culture at Lee Montessori in Washington, D.C. Bobby Johnson, I want to welcome you to Montessori in Action podcast. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. So our topic today is key children. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about the strengths and limitations of the Montessori method for key children? Um, so in thinking of strengths, as the Montessori environment would like um, provide. I was thinking um, strengths would be those learning environments are, you know, sort of non-restrictive. It's a non-restrictive environment. So mm-hmm. allowing and thinking and um, preparing their environment for the children to move about, you know, freely or sort of without, you know, limits or so. Mm-hmm. So they could do their work. So they could explore, you know, that environment and, um, socially interact with their peers that the choices are right there at their hands or the choice is right there within their eyesight because they can see ranges of children working on a variety of material um so key children would typically have a range of a develop development you know whether they're lagging skills whether they're lagging skills excuse me or if they're um right on you know right on point um, I would say um, another strength would be that it's um, it's a multi-age environment, so that's providing um, mm-hmm. a, a lot of different levels for children to um, to work and interact within that space. Multi-age, so that's a range of development. So if a quote-unquote key child is having like a you know they're at a lower or um, a lacking like development level, then having the access to older children or having the access to maybe younger children, those could provide opportunities for modeling, you know, among, you know, each other. Mm-hmm. There's a guide mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're saying that they not only do, do they fit in wherever they are, but also they have someone who's a role model for them. Yeah. So they're, they're allowed to like model for and also model after because of the multi-age within the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those are some um, some of the strengths I would I would think so so far. Mm-hmm. And what about limitations? Do you 
see places that the Montessori classroom could expand or improve to be a greater support to the key children? Um, they would be limited, I guess, in a different way of saying it, um, limited to the ideas of like um, Montessori. If maybe like if it wasn't necessarily believed in by like um, the professional team that um, usually is like working with the uh, child or maybe if the family themselves aren't necessarily mm -hmm. like um, like convinced or like feeling, you know, this may be, you know, right for my child. Um, mm, so you're talking about the adults, either the designated aides that are working with the child or the family that might not have a, a click with Montessori. Is that what you mean? External factors. Yes. Um, but if there's like an idea of like, you know, this not might be the best fit. So saying as far as like, um, you know, um, we'll set when children are showing, uh, that they are like, um, that they're like, that they belong or like that they, uh, that they feel like, um, connected or they feel, you know, like wanted in the space. Ideally they'll thrive, you know, within that space. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so I would say like maybe thinking of maybe external factors like um, any adults or those, you know, not of the child themselves who are like working around mm -hmm. or living, you know, with the child. Maybe if they have a feeling against or around, like, you know, maybe this not be, might, might not be the right fit, you know, for my kid. I'll take them over to this program over there, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So maybe it's the mind of the adults and not the Montessori setting itself that is causing a difficulty or being a limitation for the child. So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about some things that you're doing now to support key children during this time of virtual learning. I know Washington, D.C. has started their school year um, virtually and not in person. And I'm curious to hear how your role has shifted and changed. Yes. Um, I was um, at first um, before having to go virtual due to, pan due to the pandemic, um, always at a at a like an arm's reach, you know, always at an arm's reach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There were always times mm -hmm. to just to be able to um call over and over a radio or um respond um like phone call or like speaker announcement or, or just you know just walking, just walking around or being around you know and um active active when things are happening on that on that situation. Now ways of like uh support and like being responsive. And um, like um, meeting and collaborating with um, um, you know staff and such is uh, like modes of communication have just changed. You know, for one, but a um, like a perspective or like uh, like the view is uh, sort of different. It's just making sure like everyone is like has access, really has mm -hmm. access, and like are like tap tapped in now or like logged in you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes other key children from like the springtime um those are some families that i did have to i did and we did have to uh, work closely with because there were say maybe like two or three families um that either it took a while to um finally start getting logged in mm -hmm. or um you saw them two or three times and then the rest of the time you know no more mm-hmm mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a lot you miss about having them in the live school setting. Yeah, the, those are the ones that um that taught almost taught me the most. Mm -hmm. They taught me the most mm -hmm. because um 
you know, you have to learn um, the, the different temperaments. You learn uh, the, like the different times of day. Um, learn what um, each response is like communicating what type of need, you know, you know, maybe the case, the delivery and acceptance of like of messages or, um, <laughs> like wait, ways, ways of like, um, giving demands or suggestions or allowing, allowing yourself to like, um, sit back, observe, and, you know, just, you know, the, uh, allow them you know they, they will they will they will interact with and work with you know whatever they um they they like and see fit just like every other child it sounds like um you're talking about control that comes up and yeah yeah say more about that <laughs> i was i would say that guy maybe comes up um it seems as if the easiest or the best way of doing things is just to go straight ahead just just straight to it um with some of the key children they would um they'll go there then they would go there and they'll go mm -hmm. there before getting there um so you may have control coming about as far as like you know <laughs> why they taking so long to to complete the mm -hmm. work <laughs> why are they doing it that style that's not the way it was presented, you know, presented. So they're growing our patience. That was the thing I always noticed when working with key children is I would just notice how impatient I am as a human being that I needed everyone to hurry up and what was my big hurry. <laughs> and uh, yeah, key children help me slow, slow down, yeah. you know? Yeah. That'll come about sometime. Yeah. It's a lot of work because you think, um, you think like you're losing sleep overnight. Think always thinking about those key, key children when it, it becomes like um it can become a, a hassle and then that'll that'll like change or that'll in turn influence the way um, we may be influencing the child or you know um encouraging them some type of ways or um setting the mode or as you know some of our staff would say at Lee like uh, set the weather and the tone for um for like mm -hmm. how mm -hmm. everyone else will interact with that key child. Mm, yeah, it's an investment that grows us all, right? And that's a nice way to end our episode on key children, remembering the investment that we make in them grows our whole community. Bobby, thank you so much for talking with us today about key children. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Mm, thank you, Bobby. Our show is a project of Public Montessori in Action elevating voices in the community to forward the mission. Our host is Elizabeth Slade. Our producer is Isaac Price Slade. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with others. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.